As a reminder, content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investors in any Inovia fund. Please note that Inovia and its affiliates may also maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, visit inovia.vc. Welcome back to Inovia Sessions, your source for insights on tech entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Inovia Capital Principal Mike McGraw, coming to you from London. In today's episode, we delve deep with Emil Ephraim, CEO of Neo4j. He started a graph database software company in 2007, which has now raised close to $600 million, employs over 700 people, and is used by 75 of the Fortune 100 companies. From starting in Sweden to a quick move to the US and an eventual return to Europe, Emil candidly shares the evolution of Neo4j over the years. As a tech leader who transitioned from being in the day-to-day trenches in the US to eventually taking a hybrid approach, he paints a vivid picture of how leadership styles change with growth. His anecdotes about balancing the American company mentality with a Swedish soul and the core principle of valuing relationships offer a unique perspective on nurturing company culture. Join us as we journey through Neo4j's incredible growth trajectory and discover Emil's unparalleled insights on scaling internationally. Welcome, Emil. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. So before we jump in, can you just give us a couple minutes on what is the business and what is the product itself? Yeah. At at the highest level, we're a database company and we're founded on a very, very simple premise. And in fact, since you and I will be talking a little bit about history and the early days, back in the days, people thought of it as a simplistic premise, right? Which is the following. The world is becoming increasingly connected. And people throw the word data around a lot, but not everyone thinks about what it actually is. Data is a representation. It's a digital representation of the physical world. So it follows then that if the world is becoming more connected, data is becoming more connected, right? And there's a lot of value in analyzing data connections and relationships, how things fit together. And so what we have invented is what's called a graph database. And that's a category that we coined ourselves and which we may or may not talk about later on in the conversation. And we built the leading product in that category called Neo4j. And it's amazing at figuring out how things fit together in massive, massive sizes of data, drawing out patterns and figuring out that someone who works here used to work there in the past and how are you connected to various products that a customer is having and patterns like that in real time. That's fantastic. It's incredibly powerful, the power of graph databases, right? I think you and I have both been privy to how long in the making it's been. Um, For those listeners that don't know me personally, I actually come from a family of entrepreneurs and my dad had a graph database software business also about 15 years ago. Unfortunately, things didn't work out. I mean, I'm very glad to see that, you know, someone made it work and that you had what it took to make it all the way and actually leading to a big investment in 2021 in which Inovia participated. So for me, that's kind of full circle from kind of the family business to supporting now the leader in the field, which is extremely exciting. And just for fun, for some of our listeners, can you name some of the use cases that people might be aware of um, that would be kind of in the news in the past couple of years? Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll broaden it to kind of generic use cases and I'll talk through a couple of specific examples, right? So so fraud detection is a, is a great use case for finding patterns in relationships in, in data, specifically fraud rings. So a bunch of transactions that are in and of themselves, not anomalies. And anomalies is what usually fraud detection software tries to identify. But individually, they're not anomalies, but they're connected in a fraudulent way through a fraud ring. 
So whenever things is like connected in a way, it's usually a kind of a good signal that maybe a graph database is a is a good fit. But recommendation engines, anything that's mapping out any kind of a journey, like a customer journey on a website, someone is clicking here and there, and then maybe they purchase something online, and maybe they also purchase in the physical store, like that kind of customer journey is a fantastic fit for, for a graph database. But it can be also a patient journey in healthcare, or it can even be a data elements journey inside of an enterprise for tracking for like GDPR and stuff like that. It's called data lineage, right? And then anything mapping the physical world, right? This is, hey, you're mapping out a supply chain. What's a supply chain? It's a bunch of nodes connected to other nodes. And what happens if, if you have a supply chain disruption? How will that kind of cascade across your, your enterprise? Or any digital twin mapping out your product hierarchies, right? So these are some examples of kind of generic use cases, but widely deployed in the enterprise. And then more specifically, right, so the Panama Papers, that is, I think, a primarily Europeans, European audience, right? And so the Panama Papers was, of course, big here in, in Europe. It's, it's actually a while ago. It's like in 2016, seven years ago. I feel like there's been a few more of these since then as well, no? It has, right? So the Panama yeah. Papers, then you had the Paradise Papers exactly. and a bunch of other things, right? And so trying to find patterns in international kind of transactions, in particular related to tax havens, right? Yeah. That's a great use case. 99% of all the airfare calculations, all the flight tickets in the world are calculated with Neo4j, which you can think about that, right? So I'm, I'm recording this from Malmo, Sweden. Next week, I'm flying to DC and then to Park City in Utah. So you can yeah. imagine like, all right, what's my flight route? I can fly you know, through Frankfurt to DC, or I can fly through London to DC, and then kind of DC to Salt Lake City or DC to Chicago, right? That's mapping your way through a bunch of connections and relationships. So those are a couple of, of, of use cases and, and case studies. So are you telling me that I should blame Neo4j for all the exorbitant flight prices I've had to pay in the last few months? <laughs> yeah, quite, quite possibly. And <laughs> for that, I apologize. That's okay, because you're helping cure cancer on the other side. That is that is also accurate. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I mean, listen, even when, when we were doing the due diligence and just even just getting to know each other, right, you realize that we're brought up to think in a very like tabular manner as far as the tools that we used, but implicitly we're thinking in a graph manner in so many ways. And, and that's how you get, you know, what they call like the graph epiphany, which I had during my own diligence, which is just fantastic. Spot on. And that the human brain thinks associatively. Right. Like as pe people listen to this, it's firing off things like, oh, wait, what, what he said there is maybe related to this thing that I experienced. Or, and, and that's associative thinking, which is all about going from one concept and then tra traversing through a relationship to another con concept. OK, so if we get a bit closer to kind of the, the main topic here, which is North American expansion, I think I'm, I'm so excited to have you here today because a lot of the people I'm, I'm talking to as part of this mini series are kind of earlier in their journey or they're planning their journey. And so they're thinking through and they're walking us through some of the planning that they're doing and, and kind of the decision triggers that they have. In your case, you're 12 years in. This is a long enough amount of time to have some learnings, to have some best practices to share and whatnot. So as we take a bit of a step back, can you just walk us through at the high level, the timeline of your expansion into North America? Yeah, so we were founded back in 07, right? And then we raised a small seed round in in 09 and a Series A in 2011. And really from the get-go, I had the thought, or like the early team, we had the thought that, you know what, this just feels like a Silicon Valley company. It's deep tech way before kind of the term deep tech was being used, it's by building a database, right? There's very few companies who have been able to pull that off at scale, right? So that's kind of one piece of it. 
it's developer-led, right? And then it's selling into the big enterprises of the world, but also with partnerships with big tech companies. Like you add that all up, it just it just feels very much like a Silicon Valley company, right? So we were founded as a Swedish AB, that's the equivalent of a Inc or LTD, right, in Sweden. But then we got established as a Delaware corporation, right? So we flipped the company. And we can go into that. Maybe that's not the most interesting part or not. But like at the time, we believed that was was going to be uh, advantageous uh, uh, for us. And so then in 2011, uh, in conjunction with the Series A, uh, I moved with my my family of family of one. I had a, only a wife <laughs> at, the, at the time, but we, but we were pregnant. So so I guess a okay. family of, of of three. One and a half. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we moved over, and and I got settled in in, in the valley in 2011 and onwards. Okay. And how big was the team at that point? So let's see here. When we were eight people, we were all in Europe, seven in Sweden. We hired mm-hmm. one person in London. And then we hired two, like employee number nine and 10 were US based. But then I still lived in, in Malmo, although yeah. I, in reality, I lived on a plane. But yeah. <laughs> technically, if you ask the tax authorities, my, my tax <laughs> residence was, was Malmo, right? You know, I spent all the time just flying back and forth, but I lived here. And then, you know, employee number 11 was my COO at the time. Yeah. Um, and he was based in the Valley. And that's also when I moved over. So let's call it a dozen people. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's pretty early by a lot of kind of European standards. Usually you see it one of two ways, right? You'll have companies that will move very early like you did or much later, but it's right to have an in-between. So we kind of know which camp you're in. And you mentioned the US, you know, developer-led culture, kind of the size of the market. Can you just give me a few more examples of, or just reasons, right? Like the rationale behind the move at that point in time? Yeah, we moved pre-revenue and there was some kind of activity and a little bit of kind of money changing hands, but like way before any kind of predictable, scalable revenue stream, right? We, I don't know, maybe we had a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue or something like that, right? So very, very small. And obviously, you know, we were founded in Sweden and Sweden has whatever, 10 million population. You, you can't build a massive company out of, out of yeah. Sweden just <laughs> selling into the Swedish market. And then we already talked about kind of how we felt like a Silicon Valley company. And I've always had this kind of theory around centers of gravity for your industry. Like if you're in entertainment, if you're in movies, I'm sure you can become like a famous actor out of... Malmo, Sweden, right? <laughs> but man, it's probably a lot easier if you move to Hollywood or you move to Bollywood, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and if you're into fashion, right, I'm sure you can do it out of, you know, somewhere. But like moving to, I don't know, Milan, Paris is probably in finance, like New York or London or Tokyo. I mean, so like being close to the center of gravity, and I always likened it to kind of running kind of either running uphill or running downhill. It's the same motion, it's the same amount of energy. It's just, you just get further if you run downhill. And clearly that center of gravity for our industry was the valley. Yeah, 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 no, that makes a lot of sense. For a bit of reference, not a lot of revenue back then, scaling out of the valley. To give people an understanding of where the company is today, how would you say your revenues are split today by you know Europe versus North America versus the rest of the world? Yeah, so we have about two thirds of our revenue in the Americas, about twenty five to thirty percent um, in Europe, and then the balance is uh, APAC. 
Okay, okay, that's great. All right, so the way I'd want to approach this, because basically here in the listeners, we have a few operators, some that are founders. I want us to start talking a little bit first about your own perspective as a founder, what that was like, the, the journey of moving, because I think there's a little bit of a twist that happened a few years in, right? So I'll let you kind of explain that to the rest. And then after that, we'll just go maybe a bit deeper in the operations of the business today. So what is your, you know, the best practices you've developed and then talk maybe a little bit about culture. But if we start with, you know, your own journey. So I think you said you moved in 2011. What happened since then? Yeah, so moved over in 2011. And, you know, in terms of lessons learned, I guess the bad news for the founders listening in, right, is that I don't think there's any way we would have been successful without me moving over there, right? That's a massive one. And people that I talk to kind of try to fake it by flying there a lot, right? And I think for the early days, like you have to live there, you have to be there, right? So that when that kind of, crucial node in your industry says, no, actually, can we reschedule to next week? Yeah. It's easy for you to do that rather than you have to reschedule some flights and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I had one particular year when I did every other week in Silicon Valley, every other week in Malmo, which is terrible from <laughs> a jet lag perspective and, and whatnot. Yeah. But even with that level of frequency, it's not like you're there there. Right. And so so me moving was a big part of it in, in 2011. And then I really hired the entire management team there. We always had engineering in Europe and I love that model. And then we wanted to be time zone adjacent. So we just kept building out engineering in in Europe. I had engineering leadership here. Everyone else I hired in the Valley. And that ended up being a really, really successful model. Every model has pros and cons, but mostly pros uh, when it comes to kind of that structure of the company. Yeah. And so you don't live in the Valley today. What happened since then? So it is entirely driven by family reasons. Uh, and, and I was actually very candid with the board. I, I sat everyone down and I said, look, here's where we are. I, I have to do this for, for family reasons. The honest view is I think I will be a worse CEO of Neo4j if I'm based out of Europe than if I'm in the Valley. And so given the choice of me living there, like for shareholders, it is better for me to live in the Valley, but I can't. For family reasons, I have to move back. And so let's have a conversation if that means that we should find another CEO. And if that's what we conclude, I will hate that because I want to be the CEO of the company, but I will fully support it because the choice was for personal reasons. But the board, you know, unanimously said, no, 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 like we, you can make it work. And this is where I have a, the advantage of having both a European and like in the US perspective on, on the board. I think maybe a pure Silicon Valley board 2017, maybe, maybe not, but like certainly pure Silicon Valley board in, let's call it like 10 years earlier, 2007, for example, they would have just, oh, you're gone. We're going to bring in the, the next guy or gal, right? Nice knowing you. Buddy. Yeah, exactly. Right. But no, so they said, no, no, we, we prefer to have you like you in the Europe is still better than someone else in the in the valley. Right. So I then moved move back home. And that's when the kind of the madness started of like doing one week in the valley and one week in in Europe, which I did for most of 2018. And then I dialed it down to like a week per month in 19, which feels like just vacation. And so so that's a little bit kind of that that, that, that journey. I mean, I think it's so interesting because ultimately you also cannot look at these things in silos, right? Like to your point, it's not just do we have a CEO 
in the valleys. We have a CEO in the valley that is performing at his best and or her best. And what does that equation look like if they are in Europe, but then at their top maximum, right? So if you have someone that's 60% in the valley of their potential, but 100% in Europe, maybe the actual gap in the end is not that wide. That's, that's spot on. And for us, it's not like I wanted or had to move to Antarctica, right? Like it was back to Malmo where the heart of the product is being built. It is one two-hour flight away from London, our only purely cross-functional office. London has engineering, product, marketing, sales, and access to all the customers in the world. One third of our business was in Europe. So it's not, it was not that weird of a choice, but um, yeah, so that's kind of how that one unfolded. So once again, if we think about, you know, some of the founders or, or executives that might be listening to this, if we kind of break it down in, in three phases, right? So you have phase one, 2007 to 11. So I call it the pre-Americas phase. Then you have the 2011 to 17. So the kind of, you know, founder in the US phase and then 17 to today, mix of COVID, not COVID anymore. As a leader, you know, how would you say, and like, obviously the company has changed tremendously during that time. Um, but how would you say that impacted your leadership style to be, you know, in the trenches then with everyone in the US where the clients are and are being a bit more remote. So having to delegate obviously a lot more, the company's much bigger. Can you kind of talk through these three phrases as, as they relate to each other? Yeah, I mean, it, it's exactly to your point, hard to unpack it from the overall growth of the company. It becomes one of the dimensions, right? So it's a little bit hard to kind of unpack the specifically the geographic location from the overall growth of the company, right? But a couple of things that we did well in the early days, and let me focus on kind of the time just around the first move over there, right? Because that 07 to 11 timeframe, most of us were here in Europe. Then we had one hub in Malmo, and then there were a couple of spokes. So that was a clear, valuable lesson that having multiple hubs is way harder than the hubs and spokes model. With the hubs and spokes model, people end up traveling into the hub and you have that shared understanding, you have the serendipitous meetings, all of that kind of stuff happens in one location. Then in 2011, we took on two things that really increased the complexity. One was another hub, San Mateo or the Valley as another hub on par with Malmö, Sweden. And then the second one is nine time zones. Right. And the time zones are just brutal. That's what I think we all know. And especially now, 10 years later, with much better digital tools, it's even easier to keep in touch. But the time zones, there's no digital tools to, to kind of fix that one. But one of the things that we always kind of talked about was that, look, we're going to be a distributed company eventually. When we are 10,000 people, it's not like we're going to be in one big ass office in Silicon Valley or in, in Malmö, Sweden. No, we're going to be distributed across the globe. So eventually we're going to have to learn how to do this in a distributed fashion. So we might as well do it early and get it into the DNA of the company. And so we painfully learned that we had to optimize for asynchronous communication with important decisions. You have to write it down and leave it around and this is kind of pre-Google Docs and stuff like that, but in whatever kind of formats you were using at the time. We painfully learned how to do what today is a lot easier, which is how do you do an all-hands call across many time zones and several offices and people being remote and what tools do you 
use and build that into your DNA really early on. That ended up being just a really important thing in the in, in the early days. Yeah, I mean, clearly kind of a, a different journey for founders nowadays. It makes Zoom and all these other tools feel fantastic, right? Like top notch. And something that maybe also wasn't necessarily as present back then, but I know is, is a lot more important today is executive coaches, right? And even, you know, how you interact with your board, or I know in your case, there's also, you know, groups of CEOs and how you interact. If we think about that international expansion journey, you mentioned you have your, your personal situation of your family and how you deal with this, you have how you deal with the time zone. That's a lot of different elements. Like, what were your external sources of support that you've dealt with up to this day or in the early days that were more helpful and then that today are more helpful? I'm curious for founders listening and are thinking, where can I get the best help? What have you found work for you? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is I've always loved advice. Oh, so common kind of founder flaw. I hate marching orders, but advice I love because then I can sift through it and choose to apply it or not. It's data points, right? You get the data points and then you make the decision. Exactly, right? So I've always kind of naturally done that. But a couple of kind of more structural things, you alluded to to one of them. You know, I've been part of a, of a CEO network of CEO peers for a while, and I have an executive coach as part of that. And it's a, it's a really kind of rigorous process where we meet once every quarter for a full day spread out over two days. And so the quality of that feedback really goes up and it's really from other people in the trenches. So that one has been been really, really valuable. And then, I mean, you alluded to to another one, right? I mean, close proximity to, to our conversation. We have Patrick who joined the board, you know, when, when you invested. And like getting people on the board with, sorry, to the more um, financial investors who, who might be listening or be part of the podcast, but like with operational background ends up being like a key thing. And for me, what I'm looking for in coaching, and you've seen this kind of develop with Patrick, a huge part of it is personal chemistry. Because when it comes to kind of coaching, if you don't have trust, you can't have the real conversation. And if you can't have the real conversation, then what are we doing? Right? It's just completely meaningless. And kind of the story behind the Inovia investment, which literally the first conversation was the day after we announced the first closing of our Series F, which we did during our, this is kind of COVID times, our online conference. And I just finished the process of raising hundreds of millions of dollars, which was very, very hectic, right? And then I had this 24 hour long online conference where we announced the round, but I had a call that Friday, we announced it on a Thursday, I had that with that Friday with this one guy, Patrick Pichette, and this other guy, Mike <laughs> McGraw, right? And do you remember the call? A 30-minute call. Yeah. Jumped yeah, yeah. on and just loved the guy. It was just like, all right, this is like a different, the personal chemistry, like the approach just felt very different. And probably some of this is honestly kind of the Nordic water, like the Canadian, Swedish, yeah. <laughs> kind of Nordic <laughs> Nordic thing. But I just feel like this is a good human being, not just like mm. a, an accomplished executive, which obviously he also is. So that laid a, a really good foundation for creating that deep level of trust. Okay, it's so great to hear about, you know, your own journey through to getting to this scale now and, and obviously a very successful company. As we said, I think you're around 700 people today. 
there has to have been a lot of you know trials and errors in in thinking about how do we structure the team and how you know who goes where and all that stuff can you give us just the overview of of what that organizational structure looks like today yeah totally so we're mid 700s you know type of people today we're still headquartered in the valley although in these days what does headquartered actually mean right like you can even debate that but kind of technically still headquartered over there most of the e-staff team, so these are the people who report to me and run the functions of the business of sales and marketing and product, uh, are still in the Valley or on the West Coast. We just hired a chief product officer in Seattle. So that's where most of the executive team is. I have a chief people officer on the East Coast, which um, obviously is just a golden location because they can tap into that West Coast time zone and the European European time zone. And then myself and the SVP engineering are based here in Europe. So that's kind of the distribution in terms of, I spoke a little bit about this before, just around maybe five to 10% of the company in terms of kind of dollars and people are in APAC, right? So we're kind of adding that incremental new new time zone, which leads to some, some type of like a new level of complexity, you know, obviously. We're functionally organized, right? So we don't have like a, a GM for North America and like a GM for the UK. And and this is related to how we go to market primarily, right? I see some businesses which are maybe very kind of locally oriented, like if it's a ride sharing business or something like that, then you go kind of city by city, right? So then I think that part makes sense, but that's not how we're, we're structured. So we're kind of in, in a functional org design at, at this point. Have you tried that in the past having, you know, VP engineering Europe, VP engineering North America, and, and like, have you seen any friction that that would have created, or is that something that you've just steered clear of? No, we've steered clear of, of it based on geography. One of the things that we've tried has been, as the company crossed 100 million ARR, can we layering multiple products onto it? So we have a graph data science product, and we have a cloud product on top of our kind of self-managed core database offering. And so as you transition from a single product company into a multiple product company, that ends up being one of those inflection points. It's a step function change in complexity for your business. And actually, one of the learnings that we've had over the years is that we try really hard to, to avoid drawing, drawing functional lines across geographical lines. So in other words, if you have, I'll make an extreme, you have all of engineering in Europe and no commercial, no sales and marketing people. And in the US, you have only sales, the commercial go-to-market team and no engineering. At that point, there's anyway a tendency over time, just a natural group kind of Dunbar number, group affinity psychology in human beings, like being flock animals at the end of the day, right? Where it's like an us versus them, right? Between engineering and product and product and sales and sales and marketing and so on and so forth, right? And then there's that between a European mentality and a US mentality. And if you also align your functional lines to the geographic split, that reinforces that. So we tried really hard to, to avoid that. Similarly, I think what's interesting is there might also be different sales or product challenges and opportunities across geo. Like how do you yourself go about making sure the whole company is aligned on what matters most to the company, regardless of geographies? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't feel like I've necessarily mastered this one, nor do I think that anyone ever feels that they've mastered it. But ultimately, it comes down to communication, over communication, 
And the hardest one for me to get used to, which is you just have to love to repeat yourself and just say the same things over and over and over again until you are just bored senseless from it. And then you keep saying it another 1000 times. And one of my favorite quotes on leadership is from Steve Mills, the legendary software chief from IBM. And he thought for a while and he said, the difference between what's in my head and what I say and what people hear and what they then do. <laughs> and just think about yeah. all the layers of translation that go through yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And that becomes exponentially harder the, in, my, in my experience, the, the more your organization grows. Shifting gear a little bit, just kind of touching on the culture building. Once again, I think, you know, we've talked about the culture building, call it between you and the board. And, and obviously this is something that, that I'm experiencing firsthand. But, you know, if we look at the business as a whole, correct me if I'm wrong, in May of this year, Neo4j was named one of the global top 100 most loved workplaces which is a pretty big deal. So first of all, huge congratulations to you and a huge congrats to Kristen, I think, which you just mentioned is, is based out of New York. What I thought was so interesting about it is that, you know, reading some of the interviews and whatnot is you mentioned how Neo4j's core value hasn't changed since day one. And right, like I've been part of value exercises in different firms I've worked at and you always reshuffle things here and there. But I think the consistency over 15 years is pretty incredible. Can you tell us why is that and, and how did you manage to kind of keep it throughout? Yeah, I think this is this is one of those things that, look, who, who knows, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, maybe it'll change because it has to. And I think culture is an organic evolving thing and it, it, should, it should evolve and adapt over time. When we set out to build this, like we looked at the world and we saw that, hey, there's a lot of relationships in data that is being underused by software today. That was kind of our point of view on the world, right? And why did we have that point of view? Because we value relationships. We find relationships really important and valuable, right? As human beings, not not just through personality, right? And if you look at the three co-founders, myself and Johan and, and Peter, we're very relationship-centric. So the first people we hire, we really value those relationships, right? And there's times we were 50 people, I remember, I still knew everyone's spouses, like the names of everyone's spouses, and most people's children, if they had children. I knew the names of most of, of the kids, right? And it was not like a, something that I did as a performative thing. And I'm not saying this now to, to kind of applaud myself, but like it was just how we operated. And so you do that, and if it's an intrinsic thing in you, it becomes an emergent part of your culture. And so we formalized that as our first core value. We have six core values. And our first core value, to your point, has been the same forever. And it's very, very simple. It's just three three words. We value relationships, right? We value relationships. We're people who value the relationships between our colleagues, certainly between us and our community of users, and certainly between us and our customers, us and our shareholders, us and our partners. And you know what? We value relationships in data. And so we've had this as our meta value since day one. But then we've also evolved and changed other values over the years. And that is, I think, a requirement to be successful as the company is, is changing in shape and form and facing different challenges. Then you have to change how you operate and, and things that you value and that you emphasize in your culture. Do you think your values would be 
explained the same way or the same generally if you hadn't expanded to the US? Say you're still a sizable, successful firm, Europe only. How do you think the US influences the resulting values? I think the first value, the we value relationship, would still be the same. But in the other five, a lot of it is influenced by what I've been talking about as building an American company with a Swedish soul. And it's a, it's a little bit of a kind of a moniker, but I love it. And what I mean by that is, look, there's a lot of things you can think about with kind of big American companies that is going wrong and, and this and that. But one of the things that I've always loved by American kind of managerial culture is setting bold, ambitious goals and then aggressively managing yourself towards those goals. And I don't see that as prevalent, certainly not here in, in Sweden, right? That's kind of one hand, and I love that part. On the other hand, in Swedish managerial culture, one of the things that I love about that is there's a concept in organizational theory called power distance. And it's the perceived distance between kind of the lowest factory floor worker, kind of air quotes type person, right? Be that, I don't know, someone who's on the assembly line or perceived to be kind of the lowest ranking and the CEO. So the perceived difference between the CEO and the lowest ranking worker. It's called power distance, right? Whenever you look at a chart of that per country, you'll find Sweden at the absolute origin. Really? The perceived power distance between the CEO and the lowest That's ranking incredible. is almost non-existent. <laughs> and this was shocking to me when I moved to the US in 2011. And I felt that I had a really good sense of American culture because I'd lived there as a teenager. But moving there, it took me a while to realize that I was proposing something. Hey, what do you think? Should we do this? And people just said yes. But after a while, I realized, no, you actually disagreed, but you marched anyway because I'm the CEO. So I started talking about in onboarding that, you know what? It's okay to challenge me, right? Like, I want that. Please do that. I don't have to say that to the Swedes, by the way, but I had to say that in, in, in the US. And you know what? It didn't change anything. And so then I started strengthening that. And I had like this onboarding talk track where I said, you know what? It is your job. It is a fireable offense. If you disagree with me and you don't tell me, that's a fireable offense, right? If you come up and you challenge me, I might still disagree with you because occasionally I've been thoughtful about a decision, right? You know, so I, <laughs> I actually might be right, but I want to hear it because you're out in the front lines, you're out in the field. And so marrying then kind of that part of Swedish culture and how you treat your employees on one hand with the American kind of boldness and ambition, right? That part, American company with a Swedish soul, we would not have gotten if we had expanded to the US. I think you've described pretty well how you create that unified culture. I'd love for you to maybe build on that even a little bit more, right? Like you built it early into the DNA of the business. Tactically speaking, you mentioned, you know, you'd go back to Malmo and you'd, you'd kind of do a mini town hall with the eight people that were there at 750-ish. What does that look like tactically? Is it town halls? Is it like, what, do you, what have you found really works best for the business? Yeah, this is, this is evolving all the time as we grow in, in stage and also kind of uh, obviously as things change in the world, like for example, in COVID, it looked kind of different than just before COVID and so on and so forth. Right now we're in a cadence where we have monthly all hands calls. Internally, of course, we call them all the nodes calls because we're all nodes at, at Neo4j. So we have monthly all nodes calls and they are kind of more broadcast oriented. And then we used to do it also once per month. We've dialed it down. So now it's twice per quarter. So 
Three times per quarter, once per month, we have the all nodes call structured. And then twice per quarter, we do a, a free form town hall. And this we're, we're using a Q&A tool called Slido, um, where people can log on, they can ask any question, and then you vote on questions. You cannot offend me with your question. I might not answer it, in particular, if it's something related to kind of HR, other people, like, of course, I'm not going to answer that. And many times I'll say, I don't know, because again, at our scale, there's a lot of things going on that I just don't know. Another version of that is is onboarding, where we do kind of formal onboarding and, you know, pre-COVID and hopefully soon we're going to bring it back. We fly people in. And so that's the cohort of people who've started in a quarter. And then they fly in and it's just a time-based cohort, which means it's any geo, it's any function, and they get their t-shirts of kind of graph of, uh, you know, Q1 of 2023 or whatever it, it might be. And they form these relationships that are completely outside of their own functions and, and geo. So when you say they fly in, you have two hubs, right? I mean, three hubs now, which is it they fly into their nearest hub? Do you fly everyone to an opposite hub? So there's more mixing? How do you go? About yeah, that? so before the pandemic, we did every Every other onboarding was either San Mateo in the valley or in Malmo in Sweden. So that was the every other one. And then if you were unlucky and you were hired in San Mateo, then it was just a local one, right? And if you were lucky, you got to fly out to the other side of the world, which most people kind of saw it that way. And then, of course, in, in COVID, we did it all remotely. We've not yet spun up the the face-to-face one yet so we still do the synchronous it's based on a cohort but it's still remote i'm dying to do them face-to-face because i think it's so much higher quality but this cost implications just cost in terms of dollars and then also kind of trade-off of time and and efficiency so we're we're thinking through that right now i mean just to your early point right culture is like an ever-evolving mechanism and so it's it's internal it's external whatever the kind of market environment is and whatnot it's something you have to adapt to okay unfortunately this is the sad part we're approaching the end as we're just looking back on part of our conversation i think there's many many great insights here if there's you know one takeaway that uh, you'd want founders operators anyone that's listening to this to kind of leave us with what would it be one insight Well, the framing of the conversation is entering into the American market. And I guess I'll end it since I've talked about the touchy-feely relationship and, you know, how we're a a friendly culture in many ways and that kind of stuff. But maybe I'll end it with some tough love, which is going to the U.S. market is the difference between a massive outcome or a good outcome for many categories. Maybe not all. I don't know. I'm not an expert in all categories of startups, obviously, right? But for many of them, it is. The ability to be successful with entering into the market goes up significantly if you as a founder and CEO physically move there for years. Not go there a lot on planes, but physically moves there for years, which may be too high of a personal cost or whatever, but that's a obviously deeply personal decision. But I think objectively, unambiguously, for many, many startups, the probability of a massive outcome goes up significantly if you as a founder CEO move there. Thank you so much, Emil. I know you're a very busy guy and like saving the world, basically. Uh, So I appreciate you kind of sparing an hour to come and talk to me. It's been absolutely eye-opening. So thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Fantastic. Thanks a lot.
I'm your host, Mike McGraw, and it's been a pleasure bringing you today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me and see you next time.